Hello and welcome to ELT Time with Garnet Education, where we talk with an industry guest about the hot topics and what's brewing in the ELT community. Hello and welcome to ELT Time. My name's Matt and as Digital Manager here at Garnet, I've been put in charge of today's episode. You're about to hear me chatting with Nick Peachy about some of the cool stuff you can do with digital tools in the ELT classroom. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is an award-winning ELT writer and course designer, educational trainer, blogger, international conference speaker. He is a leading authority on all things EdTech and ELT, and his monthly newsletter provides subscribers with an array of useful apps and online resources for use in the English language teaching classroom. He is the winner of two British Council Elton Awards, the Award for Excellence in Course Innovation in 2012, and the Award for Innovation in Teacher Resources in 2016. So welcome to the podcast, Mr. Nick Peachy. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, so why don't we start with those uh, those Elton Awards? Um, the one in 2012 was for Course Innovation. What was that all about? Um, that was uh, for a blended learning in ELT course that I developed for Bell Educational Services. And that mm-hmm. was a course uh, for teachers and um, helping them to build their own um, blended learning courses or course materials. Mm-hmm. So this this term blended learning, what do we mean by that? It's a, it's, a, it's a term of art that gets thrown about quite a lot. How would you define that? It does get thrown about quite a lot and, and often very confusingly when really it's <laughs> something that's really very simple. You know, if you're doing some form of learning within your classroom and you're giving your students some form of learning to do online in the, or on a computer or on a digital device at, at some stage, then you're doing some blended learning. Sure. So it is is most simple level. That's basically all it is. Doing some sort of a blend between some learning face to face and some learning through sort of digital or online resources. But mm-hmm. of course, you know, on the more complex level, there are different ways you can configure that learning, and different ways the relationship between what you do in the classroom and what you do in line can relate to each other and build learning. So you get from that things like flipped learning emerging, which is, you know, basically getting students to go away first, work through some instructional materials to learn something and then come into the classroom to sort of practice it. So, you know, that's a a sort of different way that you can apply a different paradigm of learning onto blended learning. Sure. So in 2012, was blended learning an emerging idea or is this already something that was quite well established? I don't know. I, I mean, I think blended learning's been around for quite a while. Um, mm. you know, I've, I've been doing it, I guess, myself in some form since this makes me sound really old. Since the last <laughs> century, you know, <laughs> back in the the late nineties, you know, I was sort of messing around with online platforms yeah. and sort of, you know, to support my face to face classes. Sure. I guess as soon as the internet arrived, it became a, a tool to be exploited in some way. Yeah, that's right. Um, but it seems to have been picked up as of a as a bit more of a buzzword more recently. And I think that's because it's making greater inroads into sort of things like corporate training these days and uh, and sort of more mainstream education. It seems to be kept becoming a lot more popular there. Sure. Interesting stuff. And and what about the uh, innovation in teacher resources in 2016? What was that? Um, that was for a book that I self-published. Uh, I had an idea. I'd had an idea for ages to, to write a digital book rather than a paper-based book. And I crowdsourced some funding to help me get some time to write it mm-hmm. uh, using a platform called Indiegogo. 
I raised about five or six thousand pounds and then took a few months off to or theoretically took a few months off to write this book, um, nice. which turned into um, actually probably nearer six or nine months. It took me to write it in the end and it was 400 pages long. It was a digital book designed for the iPad and it had videos and video tutorials built into it and lots of example lesson plans and resources and things like that. Very nice. Very nice. So yeah. it's... um. 20, 2012, 2016, by that, by my maths, that makes you do a, another Elton uh, next year. Have you got anything? I, I, I have <laughs> entered something, yeah. I, have I, you? I've just finished a book called Hacking Creativity, um, okay. which I've entered this year. Well, I say I've finished the book. I don't know if any of my books are ever really finished. I mean, right. which is one of the great things about digital is that you can keep, you know, adding and changing things. And it's very easy to sort of just uh, push it live and give your, your customers a new copy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We find that I find that as digital digital manager at, at Garnet as well. When we have a, a book, we need to update it. It's much, it's much easier to update the ebook version than it is to the uh, the print yeah. version. If you've got five thousand print print copies, um, yeah, you're kind of already distributed around the world. Then that's that's a problem. Yeah, yeah precisely. Um, uh, that's great. So that kind of segues nicely into um, your kind of. Uh, I, I should say um, for the benefit of the listeners. So we, we uh, there's a book called Twenty First Century Skills in the ELT Classroom, which is due out um, from Garnet Education in early. Uh, 2020 and Nick wrote um, chapter two which was um, all about kind of focusing on creativity and innovation um, through the medium of, of ed tech and the internet and apps and so on um, so do you just want to talk more to start with sort of generally about um, creativity and innovation and the relationship between those things and um, the internet yeah, I mean, I, I think creativity, I mean, it is something that I've been interested in for a while. Obviously, you know, I've just done another book in creativity and I've I've co-edited two books with Alan Maley for the British Council on creativity in the English language classroom and, and sort of creativity and the sustainable development goals. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. I sort of come from what I feel is a creative background. My, my original degree was in um, music and my, I majored in jazz guitar and jazz improvisation. Interesting. So, you know, I, I feel that you know, creativity has been a, a very rich and rewarding part of my life. But I think, you know, creativity also is becoming so much more important now as well with the move towards things like AI and robotics in the workplace. You know, we could see computers and robots taking away a lot of the mainstream jobs. So, you know, creativity is up there with, you know, if you look at the World Economic Forum, their top 10 skills for employability over the next 10 years, you know, creativity and, and innovation are up there as I think creativity is number three in the in-demand skills if you want to sort of um, keep your job. So I think, you know, creativity is very important. And, and I think a lot of people are made to feel that they're not particularly creative. And I think maybe that's maybe that's something that comes from school as, as we sort of get pushed into sort of different forms of learning and being told what we need to know. Or maybe that's something that just comes from life. But I think there is this expectation that sort of creativity or creative people are these kind of geniuses that have this magic idea within a moment and sort of produce wonderful music or a beautiful art, artistic picture. And I think that's not the case. You know, I think the reality is that you know, creativity is a process that you have to work through. You know, it's hard work and, and there is a process there that anyone can go through to make themselves more creative. And uh, 
I think you know that's very important, and um, putting a lot of pressure on on students or high expectations on on them that they should create some great work of art or something amazing is yeah. maybe a bit too much. But you know we can get students to be creative in the ways they use language, and I think technology is great at helping students to sort of channel that creativity as well with different apps or different tools. Some of the things that I've written about in the book, you, you can come up nowadays with something that's very sort of high quality and polished, you know, using simple free apps that are on your phone or or web-based apps. So, you know, I think that's that's something that we should be steering our students towards a lot more. Interesting and, in, and inspiring in a way that there's now kind of the arena, it's unaffordable possible for, for students to be able to use all these tools and, and get creative in there. I guess it's a, a question of kind of creating structures within which people can be creative, right? For, from a yes. teacher's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are there are a few nice books on on sort of creative process. Usually, they're they're kind of sort of aimed at people who work who, who work in sort of start up companies who who are busy trying to produce ideas that they can market and products that they can market. But you know, there's a pr- creative process that you can go through from understanding your problem, you know, brainstorming possible solutions to it, you know, evaluating those solutions, um, getting feedback on them, you know, t- taking the feedback and seeing how you can change the the ideas that you have and you know working through to, to a product or you know whether it's a work of art or whether it's you know something you produce in the classroom or a story or or just a play or the, or the answer to a project you know if we understand this process and take students through this process then they're m- mm. much more likely to produce something that's very good interesting um so should we should we talk about some specific um some of the specific ideas you have in in your in your uh, chapter of the book sure so you talk first i think about um yeah creating creating videos and having students mm-hmm. um create videos various kinds of video you talk about you talk about creating uh, soap operas and cookery programs and how to videos and news programs and so on a lot of great stuff in there um as a teacher um putting this to your to your students what would what would the process be um from the start point where you're pitching this idea to your students to the end point where they've produced for example let's say a cookery program what how would it work in the classroom I mean, it's very important to get kind of students bought into the idea and maybe get them coming up with the ideas to begin with. So, you know, For sure. if if you've got the, the space and time in your classroom, you know, you can create it as a project and say, look, I'd like you to produce some kind of program that, and you know, and the outcome should be this. Uh, maybe it should be something say take for example you know solving a an environmental problem or exploring an environmental problem or it could be showing something about your culture which could be the cooking thing but sort of get them on board and get them to come up with the ideas for what they want to produce Uh okay so once they have the idea of what they want to produce you can sort of help them to break down the stages in okay so you want to produce a cooking program you don't just go out and shoot it what's the planning stage okay who's going to do what what's the recipe going to be sort of break down the different pieces of work that they need to do to achieve that and get them working as a team collaborating to put those kind of pieces of work together then the final outcome would be when they're ready and they've prepared everything would be to shoot the video, uh, maybe get some feedback on it, maybe do another reshoot um, after getting some feedback and and sort of and improve that a little bit. So show them that there's this process, you know, 
people who produce videos don't just sort of go out with camera point at something and <laughs> why well let's sell it to the bbc kind of thing no yeah. it's important that they understand that process and sort of work that through that process with students and i think you know that's what the book really does it tries to give structure to doing some of these activities and show students some of the, or teachers some of the structure and how they can do that yeah, yeah, I think it definitely does that. Um, so in terms of um, just in the raw materials of making a video, you, you recommend a few um, a few websites in your chapter. Is there any particular ones that, that work very well and that are very easy to use that you would recommend to teachers or and students? Or I think at the, at the most basic level, the, the most basic thing that you need is, you know, a, a mobile phone with a decent camera for video recording. And that's something that great that sort of most of the most of the phones nowadays have, you know, yeah. and you can record a really high, good, high quality video, you know, better than something that the BBC could have done 30 years ago, just using your phone, which is amazing. Yeah. Most phones, um, whether you've got an Android phone or an iPhone, will have some kind of video editing software, um, usually that's free. I mean, there's two or three different things for the iPhone, probably two or three different things for the Android phone as well that you can mm-hmm. use. There are also different apps. You know, I think Shot Clip is a very good one of them, one that gives you a template for the different shots that you would need. So if you're producing, say, an advertisement or, or a news broadcast, it gives you a model to of how to structure that so that you just record clips into it. And those things can be very helpful, especially if it's the, the kind of first time you've done it. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. I should say for for the listener that all the uh, links we mentioned in this in this podcast will be listed in the uh, description. So not to worry about trying to write everything down as you listen. Um, so yeah, going back to so you're setting up your classroom. You've the, everyone's on board um, with the idea. They, they've decided they've presumably broken down into smaller groups. One of whom's going to make a cookery program, for example. Um, and and at that point, do you just kind of leave them to it to thrash it out? Do you provide um, sort of structure or, or scaffolding in terms of the language they might be used in order to collaborate with each other? Or I guess that depends to an extent on what level um, students you're teaching, of course. Yeah, it, de- it depends a lot on the level of the students and the maturity. You know, mm. I mean, the, a great thing to be doing while they're trying to do these things is, I mean, also make sure they're doing them in English for a language class. But yeah. is to be is to be monitoring and sort of picking up on sort of you know the language, what their language needs are, and and what their emergent language is as well, and seeing if you can structure that things around that so that you can build in at each stage. Okay, you can have sort of a, a break stage where you sort of do some language work, which is built on the you know the language that they've needed, and during those kinds of interactions. If you want to, you can you know you can set your own language goals in advance, and you know you could, for example, your cookery program uh, could be about uh, imperatives and structuring instructions, or, and you could do some work on that first. Or, for mm-hmm. example, your news article, you know, if you want them to create a video news report, then you'd be probably looking at things like um, past tense, uh, present perfect tense, reported speech, uh, question forms, if you want to do a little interview in it with someone on the spot. So, you know, it's good to think about, OK, what, what language are they going to need to, to produce this yeah, yeah. for the finished article, but also the language that they'll need to interact with each other to do it. The kind of the kind of functional collaborative language, yeah. Because this is when I, I was I taught English a very long time ago, and I was taught kind of yeah, present all the language they'll need for the end application at the start, drill that, and then away they go at the very end of the forty minute lesson, go away and do what was called in 
parlance of the time, the application for 10 minutes where, yeah, you know, they talked to each other through their favorite recipe or something. But yeah, it kind of overlooked the functional language you need in order to to kind of um, brainstorm and organize and schedule things and, you know, all that all that kind of functional good stuff that, that rarely gets uh, finds its way into textbooks. Yeah. And potentially the digital skills that they need to to develop Hmm. while doing that. And of course, the other really important thing in terms of those 21st century skills is the interpersonal skills that they need to develop Hmm. while they're doing that, you know, to agree and negotiate on different things and things like that. Really think think about how well they're doing those things and whether you can improve and help them do those things a little bit better. Yeah, that's interesting. That sort of touches on something else that I'm interested in in this Um, these, these, these ideas are wonderful and, and I could visualize them working very well in certain classrooms, but I could also see in some level perhaps that it would favor the outgoing confident student. And I can imagine the, the shyer, more retiring student kind of being a little bit intimidated at first, can I say, um, by this kind of collaborative, getting involved, getting your hands dirty, trying out language and, you know, being prepared to fail, etc. Yeah. And I think it's important that, you know, even more confident students know that, you know, in order to be an effective collaborator, you need to you need to get sort of diversity of opinion and you need to be inclusive. And those are things that, Mm. you know, maybe if you're very confident and outspoken that you need to work on, you need to work on how you get other people's opinions, because, you know, going back to those 21st century skills again, that's really important, you know. And probably, you know, when they go out into the workplace, you know, they're going to be faced with a much more diverse workplace, more so in the future than now even. And they need to know how to involve people and, you know, and be a good leader when it comes to it. And are those things that you would explicitly teach or is it something that you would watch and, you know, feedback on as as task-based stuff progressed? I think, you know, I think I'd be watching and feeding back on it. But, you know, those, those I think... There is also space for explicit learning about those kinds of things and sort of highlighting the importance of those kinds of those kinds of skills as well. I mean, it may not come within this lesson, you know, where you're do, where you're busy doing your video, but you know, it might mm-hmm. be if if you've observed things and you think they need dealing with, it might be good for the le- next lesson, or you know, you might find one of those teachable moments where you know you see one student totally dominating, and know that other students are capable of offering good ideas. So that could be a place to step in and say, look, you know, you haven't got these other people's opinions. You know, you you need to know what other people are capable of and what they have to offer. Yeah, interesting. Great stuff. Great stuff. I wanted to ask about um, music podcasts. You're a, you're a musical man. I'm, I'm a big music fan. I was um, I was always a bit. The, the extent of my musical teaching was to play Beatles songs and to get the uh, students to work out what the lyrics were, <laughs> and then step in and, and edit them where appropriate. Um, you say in your chapter that um, they might be a good way for for students to explore the language. So how would that work in the in the classroom context? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, lots of students, I mean, most students like music or like songs. And, you know, learning about songs and and learning songs is a great way to improve your listening and your pronunciation. And uh, if students have a favourite song, you know, that's in English, they can sort of do some research about it and produce a podcast about it. You know, look at the background to the band, who are the band, what, what are they singing about? Why does it appeal to them? It doesn't necessarily have to be a song in English. They could actually piece and 
pick a piece of music that they like from their you know their own culture or their own language culture but produce the podcast mm. in english to tell people about it you know most people who have songs that they love love have some kind of association you know you know i i have songs that i hear and they they remind me of something or they take me back to a specific place and you know getting students to think about the associations that they have with music and and share those associations you know that's a great thing to get students motivated about and and talking about um and uh, music is a great motivator in that way i think interesting stuff and would we wouldn't necessarily get the, the students to play the songs themselves it would just be about um kind of yeah using a the song as a jump off point for for various explorations of their own associations yeah yeah i think they don't they don't have to play it or or learn it but you know they could sing it together if, if you know if they want to i mean i i mean much as i studied music i have never taken really? my guitar into uh. an english language <laughs> class and got my te- students to sing you know it's is asking people to take a yeah. sort of step yeah. off the, into the unknown but i think you know music is great and if if your your students are are confident singing there's great lots of great things you mm. can do with that you can actually get them to okay if you're learning a a grammar point and you've got five sentence example sentences you can try and get them to put those those sentences to the tune of a song that they know or something like that and sing them to madonna's like a virgin or something <laughs> like that whatever song it is they like. but i think you know music is a is a is a very sort of good way to open up people's creativity and sort of getting to, them to listen more you know and i think bringing in different kinds of music not just english songs but sort of different kinds of classical music or music from different cultures and exposing students to it and getting to them to listen more i think is a great way to sort of open them up to sort of and open their creativity up open them up to the world you know yeah yeah no it's great stuff, and the 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 final um, thing of uh, from your chapter I wanted to talk about is um, creative writing activities that have become, um, yeah, you know that the the world of ed tech and the, the internet in particular has opened up as as possible avenues to explore for for ELT teachers. Yeah, I think you know there's there's so many opportunities now to write, and so many different opportunities. I mean, I love this one of the things that I mentioned in the. The, the chapter is uh, texting fiction mm. and it's a kind of new genre of fiction which is but what you read instead of reading a book is you read um, people's text interactions so it's a bit kind of voyeuristic yeah. but you read a conversation between two different people and uh, you you kind of the story is built in that way it's built around their dialogue and of course, like any kind of texting interaction, you can send people emojis, videos or pictures of where they are and things like that and build this kind of multimedia story. And there are there are a few recommendations for tools in the book about how you can do that. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, a nice way of building fiction, but it's also a nice way of presenting new language as well. You know, putting it in a, into a dialogue between two people. Usually these, the app that I use, once you've created the dialogue, it produces it as a video so that they watch the dialogue evolve by watching this video and read through it at the same time. So it's a kind of nice way to present language in a reading activity. Definitely. That's, yeah, you can see the um, possibilities there are almost endless. Yeah, I see. I've, not, I've never actually done that, that um, text story thing. I've been advertised at me with uh, 
sort of horror stories you, you need to get out of the room now. What are you talking about? You're scaring me, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the, the one. There are two prominent genres. One is the horror story kind of thing, and one is the romance kind of thing. Maybe it's, you know, that's the, the teen area, but, you know, they, they do seem to be predominantly that. But I, I did write one for a course that I developed, um, which was sort of. Um, a customer service one. There was a guy, you know, for, uh, texting into to a help desk to try and get some help with his phone. The, the screen had broken, and the customer service person had to sort of handle his complaint and deal with his anger and things like ah, that. Ah, interesting. So you know, there are con- some quite constructive things that you can do with it. Because mm, that's an area now, isn't it? You, these days, you very often you're dealing with customer service people by via a chat box rather than on the phone. So yeah, that's a whole new area of language. Yeah. That's right. And going back to those, you know, the World Economic forum and those top 10 you know employability skills one of the top 10 was uh, customer service orientation and you know how to mm-hmm. give people what they need or to help support people so that's you know some way to develop that as well yeah interesting that's great stuff um so you've talked quite a bit about um some of the opportunities and the, and the strengths of using um tech in the in the classroom what works well i'd like to focus a bit on on what sort of pitfalls teachers might avoid when it comes to using um, apps and and the internet in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest pitfall and and one that isn't really within teachers' control is is the sort of technical infrastructure within the within the school and the the connectivity there. You know, where most teachers actually fail, it's not through no fault of their own. It's because they're being asked to use technology in the classroom and the school hasn't provided sufficient connectivity to get students onto the Wi-Fi very easily, very quickly, and to have su- sufficient connectivity that things wo- so that things work. And this is a, a real disaster in many cases. You know, there are schools yeah. that I've been to to do training where, you know, you, you get 10 people onto the internet and it collapses. That's never going to be successful for teachers and you're setting teachers up to fail. So, you know, you have to be sure the infrastructure's there first. The other thing is, you know, a lot of teachers don't get much training to do this. You know, it might be, you know, once a year there's a, a tech session or something like that. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that's been neglected as well. So those those kind of areas need to be dealt with. You know, I think the other things to watch out for is, you know, using technology for the sake of it or because you think it's going to motivate students. And I think especially with more more modern students these days who, you know, are used to using um, phones and things like that, you know, it actually isn't something that motivates them. There has to be a good learning point there. There has, They have to mm-hmm. be learning something. They have to see why they're doing it. And it can't just be for the sake of, you know, oh, well, we want to use Facebook in class because that's going to be cool kind of thing. And, yeah. and I guess that's another area to avoid is, you know, a lot of social media kind of things are very personal for students. You know, they don't want to share their Instagram with their teacher, you know, <laughs> which is quite yeah, reasonable. Understandable. So, you know, think <laughs> yeah. those things out first. And, you know, if necessary, you know, they could have if you really want to do something and you feel there's something really useful you can do with Facebook or Instagram, you know, make sure they either you or they create a separate account to do it. And there are clear learning goals there and, and you know, you're clear with them and they're happy to do that. Um, and I think, you know, 
one of the biggest ways to avoid pitfalls is to get students involvement and and you know get them get them involved in thinking about and suggesting ways a lot of the time or things that they can do to use technology in the classroom because they do have ideas and you know they do have some knowledge about it for sure i think that's often the way very often the student is a, a decade or two younger than the teacher and therefore that much more um, digitally savvy and there's kind of a digital divide there where the teacher might feel like they're in some way losing control to an extent because they they can't really understand what's going on and the, and the students are, are right on top of things is that is that something that you've you've seen in your experience that is something that happens and especially if you work in a private language institution a lot of the, the students often have better equipment than the teachers as well you know they've got a more mobile more recent and more up-to-date mobile phone than the, you know, the teacher has as well so you have to deal with the there's an economic divide there as well but I think if you are a teacher and you're worried about that you don't necessarily have to use the technology in class to use it well you know get them to do things for homework or something like that you know there's a great app called lyrics training where students can sort of watch uh, a music video and recreate the lyrics to the video and you know getting them to do that at home with the song and then come and look into the meaning of the song in class, you know, is a great way to, to get them using technology at home. And, and so it's quite safe for you because, you know, you don't have to worry about connectivity. You don't have to stand up in front of your students and hope that, you know, YouTube's going to connect today. You know, they do it at home, do it in their own time and come back into class and you do the bit that you know about. That's interesting. That's a good, very handy tip. And do you find um, that there are some teachers which who just push back altogether about the idea of this of this kind of brave new world of, of ed tech in the classroom or is that kind of an attitude that's that's dying out now there are i think particularly about using technology in the classroom there's a i think there's a lot of negativity from uh, different teachers and it's not mm. always from the older ones it's often from some quite young ones as well and i think for a lot of people it creates a problem with classroom management you know if you your students yeah. got their phone there and they're they're playing with it during your lesson and doing you know you don't know what then that does create a problem but for me, the, the easiest way to get over that problem is to get them to use it in a productive way. You know, and if you're doing that, then, uh, you know, that's going to sort of that's going to avoid the kind of distraction element. You know, mm-hmm. I use a, a, an app called Hypersay uh, quite a lot at the moment when I'm doing sort of presentations at conferences. And, uh, you know, that pushes my 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 PowerPoint slides um, to their phone um, so they can watch the the. The, the slides on the phone and take notes on, on the, the content. And it also enables me to add some little interactive tasks in there that they can nice. do on the phone, like, you know, uh, things like polls and quizzes and creating word clouds, you know, as we work through the, the materials. So sort of using something like that can keep them occupied on the phone. And then, you know, you don't have to worry about whether they're doing Facebook instead or something like that. <laughs> Sure, and in the in the classroom context, do you give little little breaks? I, I was at um, Barcelona. What's it? What's it called? Innovate ELT Barcelona, and I watched a, a plenary about um, how we, none of us have longer than ten minute attention spans now. We've basically all been ruined by social media, and and um, is that is that something that you find is uh, mitigated by by what you were just talking about, or do you think it's do you, do you notice that um, attention span is is an issue in in students these days? 
I, I don't agree that, you know, that the, the, the attention span has been ruined. Mm. Uh, you know, what I think, what I see, I mean, I've got a daughter who's 20, you know, and when five, six years ago, she was really into Harry Potter. And I saw her sit down and read, you know, those books cover to cover, you know, almost without a break to eat because yeah. she was engaged. You know, right. what students have nowadays is a very low tolerance for boredom. And I think that's fair enough. You know, I have quite a low tolerance for boredom as well. You know, I don't want to go somewhere and be paid to be bored by someone. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to make things engaging. And I think maybe that's something that I've noticed more and more, you know, it's important to be engaging and to, to bring passion to what you do and, you know, try and generate that kind of passion in your students. You know, so I, I don't agree with the 10-minute attention span at all. Um, but, but I do see that, there, you know, there's a point there in terms of sort of changing up activities and, uh, and moving things on. Mm, keeping things moving. Great stuff. Interesting. So I was at the uh, Innovate ELT conference in Barcelona earlier this year, and Scott Thornbury gave a, a mini plenary on the theme of technology putting English teachers out of, of work, which was kind of a, a funny thing to hear at an ELT teachers conference um and i think his point was not that we're all going to be replaced by um sort of english-speaking robot teachers but more that um with the advent of all this this technology particularly translation apps that operate in real time both um written word and also increasingly via an earpiece you know you can hear someone speaking chinese and it'll be um you know we're not not too many years away from where that'll just be automatically translated into english so we'll be able to have a as live conversation um what are, what are your thoughts on on technology as a, as a threat rather than an opportunity well you know i think you know these these translation apps and these translation devices are certainly getting better and they will continue to you know and i think that that is a threat to a part of the market that we teach i think at the very basic kind of utilitarian level of of english where you just need to do some kind of very predictable structured things like going into a shop to buy something or or you know hand, maybe handling customer services on the telephone you, you know you have a set list of things that you're likely to be asked i think in these kind of predictable contexts things like that can work very well and they you know and that will cut into the language teaching market because there are some people who are that's all they need to do but i think the range will also always be limited because you know as as a language teach any language teacher should know communication is a very complex thing and even mm. communication between two native speakers of the same language they struggle to understand each other and there's this constant process of of you know checking that you've understood uh, asking questions and and things like that that goes on in order to sort of mend and, and fix communication as you go it's also not entirely dependent on understanding the words that the person's speaking. You know, a lot of communication comes from body language, um, elements of paralinguistics and things like that. And and so I think, you know, there's still the translation software still got a long way to go to, to sort of mm. help you cope with those things. Uh, and I think the other thing is, I mean, I mean, my wife, for example, is Venezuelan. And so, you know, I would hate to have to communicate with her through an app. You know, <laughs> luckily, she's a very good uh, English language speaker. But there are relationships that you don't want to have through an app. And I think, you know, using the app, it's a bit like, I, I mean, as, as somebody who studied music, I always relate it to like Guitar Hero, these um 
these sort of Wii computer games that you can get where you can sort of plug in a screen, listen to the music, and sort of press some knobs on the sort of plastic guitar. And theoretically, you're playing. You know, for some people, that's great. You know, that's enough for them. They feel like they're playing the guitar. They'll hear the applause. You know, that that does it for them. But, you know, for me, that that would never be enough, you know. And I think language is the same. There are still going to be people who really want to be able to speak the language and to understand each other and, you know, and to read the book in that language. It is not going to to wipe the market out. It may take away some of it, as I say, at the utilitarian level, but um, I think there's still going to be a market for language learning. And I think that is a really nice note to finish on. Um, So I'd like to say one more time, a really big thank you to Nick Peachy. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. And that's it from us today. If you'd like to get in touch or to see our latest updates, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Garnet Education or head to garnereducation.com forward slash podcast for show notes and information about today's guest. Thanks for listening.